0: Genesis 16, now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an, had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, "'You are responsible for the wrong that I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me.' "'Your slave is in your hands,' Abram said. "'Do with her whatever you think best.'" Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the river, the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who had spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, she said. I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Barad. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael.
1: And the next Bible reading is from Genesis 21, just over a few pages, on page 16. And I'll be reading that. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, and he, said, and he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When, the son, when his son Isaac was eighty days old, Abraham circumcised, circumcised him just as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah would nurse children? Yet I bore him a son in his old age. The child grew and was weaned, and on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham had a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking. And she said to Abraham, get rid of that slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman, Listen to to whatever Sarah tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make the son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He sent them on her shoulders and then sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Bathsheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. When she went off and sat down, about a bow shot away, for she thought, I cannot watch the boy die. And she sat there. She began to sob. God heard the boy crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, So she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy as he grew up. He lived in the desert and became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
2: Good evening. Great to be here. My name is Paul. This is Betsy, and we are uh, preaching together tonight. Uh, we are working through Genesis, it's this beautiful story of messy, dysfunctional people and a glorious God who is faithful to his messy, dysfunctional people. Here's our question tonight. Uh, is God there, and does God care? Is God there, and does God care? God, where are you? You ever asked that? God, are you really there for me? Do you see me? In this situation I'm going through, I feel all alone. I feel abandoned. God, where are you? Are you there for me? Or are you too busy running this vast universe that you created? That little me and my problems and my suffering, you're just not there, are you, God? You ever said that? And do you care? Do you care about me? Is your heart for me? Do you have compassion towards me? Do you want to help me, God? if you've never asked those questions of God, trust me, one day you will. One day your perfect life will fall apart. One day your perfect plans will fail. Your perfect relationships will fail. One day you'll face heartache and hurts. Sadness and sorrows and sufferings. You may feel abandoned, you may feel abused, you may feel alone. You may have these fears and these frustrations and you just cry, God, where are you? Are you there and do you care? Can I say that I'm conscious there are people in this very room tonight who are going through those valleys right now and you're facing heartache, and harm, and hurts and pains, and problems. And these questions, it's not just theoretical, it's real for you right now. I'm also very conscious that many of us here have suffered. Suffered at the hands of other people, suffered at the hands of other so-called Christians, and were carrying wounds and scars. And this is a question where we we know the theoretical answer, but perhaps we're not living with it as a reality day by day. So today we're looking at some messy, dysfunctional people. And I love that about the Bible. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. This is not a book of flattering fairy tales about fictional, perfect people. Even the people of faith, even the heroes of faith, they do and say some really, really, really dumb and often wicked things. So we start with Abraham. Here's the first point. God knows the sin of Abraham. God knows the sin of Abraham. Remember Abraham, we met him last week. He's he's the man that God called and said, leave your country, leave your family, go to the promised land. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to make... From you, a great nation is going to come from you, Abraham. And it sounds wonderful. But the problem is that Abraham is 75 years old. And he's married to a woman called Sarah. And they have no kids. They can't have kids. And this promise of a, of a nation for this man called Abraham, it sounds ridiculous. But God made that promise and sealed the promise with that covenant where he passed alone between those two animals. Remember that? Remember that? And I know that we elevate Abraham, this, this great man of faith, this great hero of the faith, the father of the faith. And we love to quote Genesis 15, verse 6. So Abraham believed God and he was credited as righteous. We love that verse. Abraham took God at his word and he trusted God. And he, he sounds an amazing man. And he was amazing. But he was also messed up. He did some terrible things. And I find that strangely encouraging. Proverbs 3 verse 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That was Abraham's problem. He didn't trust in God with all his heart. And he loved to lean on his own understanding. And we're the same, aren't we? When the first hint of problems come, we, we fail to trust God with all our heart and we start to take life into our own hands and God calls that sin And we do crazy, stupid things. And sin always has consequences and sin always impacts other people. See, Abraham looked at life through the lens called self. My wants, my needs, my longings. And he thinks he knows better than God. And he hurt people. And he abused people. Let me walk you through the Abraham story. Go back to chapter 12. Just after his calling, there's a a famine in the land, 12 verse 10, because God does not promise you an easy life. He he, he says, trust me, even in the hardest of times. 12 verse 10, Abraham went down to Egypt to live there for a while. That is crazy. God said, go to the promised land, but Abraham heads down to Egypt, the enemy territory. Verse 11, "As as he entered Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. She was stunningly beautiful, even aged 65. Uh, When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they'll kill me and will let you live. So how about this, Sarah? Say you're my sister, not my wife. Pretend to be my sister so that I will be treated well and my life will be spared. It's a horrible sin. Abraham lies, he deceives, he schemes, he's self-protective, he he doesn't trust God to provide, he doesn't trust God to protect. So he puts his his wife's life in danger. Have you grasped that? Because if Sarah is his sister, then she's open to all these Egyptian men using and abusing her. But Abraham doesn't think about her. He doesn't think about the abuse that she might suffer. All Abraham thinks about is himself. His needs, his safety, his wants. That's sin, isn't it? But God knows, God sees. And if you read chapter 12, it's amazing. God does protect Sarah. He sends his plagues on the Egyptians and, and the Egyptian king, Pharaoh, he says, Abraham, what have you done? Why did you lie? Don't you love know that? A pagan king is rebuking the so-called believer. Sing thing about sin, I hope you understood this. Don't be naive. Your sin hurts other people. By chapter 16, he, he's still not trusting the Lord with all his heart. He's still taking life in his own hand. He's still living by sight and not by faith. Here's the problem, God doesn't seem to have kept his promise. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting for almost 11 years for this promised child and and here's Abraham's mindset, it's it's typical of our mindset. When God doesn't seem to come through, let's give God a helping hand, shall we? Let's do things our way, because God clearly needs our help. And God won't mind. And so in chapter 16, Sarah comes up with this crazy idea. She, she actually twists God's word. She says, Abraham, remember God said that this child would come through your body. But God never said about it going through my body. So here's, here's a great plan. Isn't it a lovely plan? Remember that, that, that lovely maidservant, Hagar, that we acquired down in Egypt when I pretended to be your sister? It's like... Abraham's past sins are coming back to haunt him, because they often do. Go on, darling, sleep with her, have a child with her. It's the most crazy suggestion. And if anyone else suggested this to Abraham, I think he would have said, that's a a dumb idea. I hope you've realized about sin, that the greatest temptations to sin often come from those closest to you. Because with those that you are closest to, you you let your mask down and you're on your best behavior. (laughs) Now Abraham should have said, Sarah, you are my wife and I love you and we're in this together. And as difficult as this is, we've got to trust God. We've got to believe in God to come through. I will not sin against God, but he didn't do that. Verse 3, Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. So he's culpable. And I hope you realize this. He takes Hagar, he wrongs Hagar, he abuses Hagar, he violates Hagar. He sleeps with his maidservant and, and then Hagar despises Sarah. Now, Abraham should have said, verse 6, he should have said, I'm so sorry. I've wronged you, Hagar. I've wronged you, Sarah. I've wronged you, God. I've behaved so badly. Please forgive me. He doesn't say that. He says, verse 6, your slave is in your hands, Sarah. Do with this slave girl whatever you think best. He's violating her again. He's pushing her into more abuse. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar. We don't know how. Maybe she beat her. Maybe she bullied her, we don't know what it was. But here's the shocking thing, that that Abraham just sat back and watched it all. He watched Hagar suffer, he watched his son suffer. He he didn't provide, he didn't protect, he abdicated all his responsibility. He was this, this passive man, this passive abuser. And a word to the men here. I think sometimes men can be those passive people who sit back and watch wrong happening, who watch other people being hurt, and we sit back and we say nothing about it. Or we make excuses. She made me do it. Her idea. It takes guts to admit when you've done the wrong things. It takes guts to admit that you have sinned and to confess your sin. But for some strange reason, men are particularly bad at acknowledging when they have failed and done the wrong thing. Chapter 20 is about history, repeating itself. I won't won't go through it, but he does exactly the same thing. He goes down to the Philistine territory, and he has the same sin of of lying that Sarah is his sister, not his wife, the same reasons of self-protection, the same excuses that God won't mind. And as you read chapter 20, you think, is this Abraham's besetting sin? Because we all have those sins that we're more prone to like that piece of furniture you keep on banging your shin against, but you you do nothing about it. For Abraham, that's lying, self-protection, self-centeredness. And and I wonder what your besetting sin is. What's the sin in your life that you just can't seem to shake off? Is it pride? Is it self-pity? Is it lying? Is it greed? Is it sexual impurity? Is it anger? Is it a verbal sin? Well, God knows your sin. God sees your sin, you can fool people that you're nicer and better than you really are but God knows, God sees. And God cares because other people always get hurt by your sin. It hurts you, it hurts others. Please never think you got away with it. As Spurgeon says, God will not not allow his children to sin successfully. So that's Abraham, this great father of the faith. Yeah, he had faith, but he was a sinful man who hurt and abused other people, one of whom was Hagar.
3: So when we we look at that passage from 12 to 20, some of the main characters seem to be Abraham and Sarah. But in chapter 16, we're introduced to someone who's a bit of a minor player, a bit of a minor character named Hagar. There's not really that much in scripture that we know about her, other than that she's this Egyptian slave girl, which means they probably got her. Um, She became part of their household when we were just talking about that in, in Egypt when Abram was lying about Sarah. That's probably where she came from. Uh, we know that she belonged to Sarah, so Sarah was the one who had authority over her. And it's most likely, um, like I said, that she got Sarah, Sarah got her in, in, in Egypt. And, and that fact was that Sarah and Hagar, or excuse me, reset, sorry. The fact that Sarah had Hagar as a slave meant that they had great wealth. We also see at the beginning of this chapter that Sarah has gotten impatient waiting for the promise of God that Abram would be the father of many nations. They've been unable to have children, so she concocts this plan to seek to manage the situation and perhaps help God along. So Sarah suggests that Abram takes Hagar, her slave, and seek to build a family with her. Abram agrees to this plan, and the Bible tells us that Hagar is given to Abram as his wife. So here we have this rich and powerful couple, scheming and managing and making a plan for their benefit without thinking about the consequences to other people. We hear nothing of Hagar's opinion. She's not consulted or asked if she likes this plan, if she's ready to go along for the ride. She doesn't speak. She's invisible in this part of the story. The Bible then tells us that this plan works. Hagar gets pregnant. And things get even messier. Suddenly, she's caught up in a very toxic family dynamic. Tensions escalate. And we're told that she begins to despise Sarah. And Sarah begins to mistreat her. So Hagar makes the difficult decision to flee into the wilderness. To leave the community. To go out into the desert. And to face what would have meant certain death. Because that feels better than staying in the situation she's in. And here's the moment that shifts and we see that God, the master storyteller, is writing a different story for Hagar than the one that Sarai and Abram have for her. To them she may be invisible, but not to God. Because God sees the pain of Hagar. We see now in chapter 16, starting at verse 7, that an angel of the Lord finds her in the desert. So God has sought her and he finds her in the desert. During her lowest point, God pursues her and he calls her by name. He says, Hagar, where have you been and where are you going? The angel continues and tells her to go back to her mistress, but not without promising her something very similar to the promise that God had also given to Abram. If we look at verse nine, the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Then the angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Despite the control and management and abuse and mistreatment of Abram and Sarai, the seemingly insignificant slave girl from Egypt is given a promise of blessing And redemption. The angel affirms that God sees the situation she's in. He says, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. All during this horrific time for Hagar, God saw and knew exactly what she was going through. And He wasn't just watching apathetically from afar. As Abram and Sarai mistreated her and abused her, as she fled into the wilderness, he had not left her alone. See, this implies that God not only sees her, but he sees and he cares for her. She is not invisible to him, despite being invisible to the rest of society, despite the main characters of Genesis acting horribly, God sees her. He cares for her, he pursues her, and he blesses her. And stay with me for the next part because this is huge. As a response to the words of the angel, verse 13 tells us that Hagar gives God a name. She names him El Roy, which means you are the God who sees me. She says, you are the God who sees me. I have now seen the one who sees me. This is beautiful. This vulnerable and abused woman is the first person to name God, to give him a name that he did not reveal himself. She experiences what it means to be seen by the God of the universe. And the truth is, this is the story of Hagar, but this is also the truth of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is that while he was on earth, he sought and cared and pursued and blessed those who were the most vulnerable, those who were the outcasts. It reminds me of another story, a story in the Gospel of John where Jesus pursues another woman who's an outcast, who's sitting alone at the well in the heat of the day, sitting alone, and he would come and he would pursue her and he would talk to her and he would reveal that he was the Messiah and she would leave feeling seen and known and say, I met a man who told me everything that I did. God sees the pain of the outcast, the vulnerable and the abused. So if you're feeling like Hagar and you feel like you have run into the wilderness, feeling left alone and abandoned, God sees you and he cares for you and he is writing a good story for you. So as Hagar returned to the household, she believes God's goodness and she gives birth to a son Called
2: Ishmael. And Ishmael is really kind of the, the most innocent victim in this whole messy story. This little boy who didn't choose to be born, but he was treated so badly by his own biological father. And he is this episode, he feels all alone and all abandoned by those who should have loved him. And maybe you felt that. Maybe you felt all alone where nobody understands, nobody is there, and nobody cares. I remember sitting here at Palm Beach, um, about 12 months ago actually, so sitting on a rock just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing, going, nobody is there and nobody cares. And I was wrong, because God was there, and God cares, and God heard my cries. Ishmael is a fascinating character. The name Ishmael actually means God hears. Isn't that a great name? God hears. And our third point is that God hears the cries of Ishmael. God had made promises to Ishmael back in chapter 17, 17 verse 20. As for Ishmael, I will bless him. I will make Ishmael fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. So the Bible is very clear that, that Ishmael is not the chosen one. He's not the chosen line. That is Isaac's line. But because he's not the chosen one, it doesn't mean he's not loved and not blessed. And just so you know, it's from the line of Ishmael that we get the religion called Islam. If you read the Quran, Islam traces its roots back to Ishmael. Now listen very carefully to this, don't misunderstand me. The Christian God, the God of the Bible is the God of Ishmael. I'm not saying that all religions are the same. What I'm saying is this, that our God loved Ishmael, our God blessed Ishmael and The religion that we now call Islam, that there's Muslim men, there's Muslim women, there's Muslim boys and girls, they're created by our God in his image. They're loved by him. And what they desperately need to hear is to hear of the good news about Jesus. To hear about the love of God, not just the the fear of God, to hear about the grace of God, not just the guilt of God, to hear about the peace of God, not just working for God. And I'm, I'm, I'm so excited about what, what, what God is doing in this city right now where all these Islamic men and women are, are, are encountering Jesus and having their lives transformed. But Ishmael was so, so, so badly treated. Look at 21 verse 8. Isaac grew and was weaned. So Isaac's about three years old. And verse 8, Abraham held a great feast. Daddy held a big birthday party for his favourite child. But, verse 9, Sarah saw the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had born. He's got a name. His name is Ishmael. And Ishmael was mocking. Of course he was, because there's this... Sibling rivalry, you've got a a 16 year old boy who's been an only child for 13 years and and now he's watching all of his dad's affection being poured out on the favorite child Isaac. Of course he feels abandoned, of course he feels neglected, of course he's made to feel like the illegitimate one, the unwanted one, the worthless one. And Sarah verbalizes that. She says in verse 10, get rid of him. Come down to verse 14. This is shocking. Early the next morning, Abraham took some food and a skin of water, gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders, then sent her off with the boy. The boy has a name. You're kind of screaming, he's your son. But she went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beer-sheba. And as far as we know, that's the last time that Abraham saw his son Ishmael. Now, here's what I love about this story. Ishmael was abandoned by his father but he wasn't abandoned by God. Ishmael was mistreated by his biological father, but he was not mistreated by God. And maybe you didn't need to hear that. Maybe you have been abandoned or people have neglected you, but God never will. And to be honest, Abraham is, is a terrible father. Just so you grasp this, Abraham is wealthy. He is very wealthy, so he could have sent off his son Ishmael with animals and with food and with wine and with money and with servants and with shelter, but instead he chose to send him off with a piece of bread and a bit of water. And he's really sent him off to die. You've got to grasp that. Hardly enough to survive. So I reckon abandon is the best word to describe how Ishmael would have felt. Yeah, it's an, it's an emotional word, but it's true because earthly fathers are are supposed to provide and to protect and to be present. Now, I'm really conscious there'll be people in this room tonight. When I talk about your earthly father providing and protecting, it's it's a trigger point for you. Now, the words I used to describe my own relationship with my father was my father was absent, abusive. Authoritarian. I can never remember a day when he told me he loved me. I never went out with him anywhere. He was incapable. And so when I became a Christian, it talked about God being a father. That was a trigger for me. I thought, I don't want God to be my father. I had to learn that my heavenly father protects, provides, cares, loves me and hears me he hears my cries that, that concept of hearing if you're thinking of a, of a human conversation you know when someone hears you but they don't really hear you they're listening to you but it's just like your, your cries are hitting the ceiling there's no empathy, there's no compassion or they just want to fix you and when, I'm, when I'm in pain I don't want someone to fix me I want someone just to listen and to care and to walk alongside. Well, the only person who promises to do that is God himself. 21 verse 15 is a a desperate scene because the food and water have run out and Ishmael is under a bush and it's a 16 year old boy and he's sobbing and he's sobbing. Verse 17, God heard the boy crying. Verse 17, God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Verse 19, God provides miraculously this this water. Verse 20, God was with Ishmael as he grew up. It's this picture of of a father, a God who is present, who listens, who provides, who protects, who is there and who cares. Remember the story of the Indian boy and part of the transition from boyhood to manhood was that the the boy had to sleep outdoors by himself all night. The problem was that this, this boy was terrified of the dark. And he lay in his tent all night. Awake all night. He heard every single noise, every animal cry. And as sun rose the next morning, this shadow was cast over his tent. And the boy let out this blood-curdling scream. Because he presumed he was about to be attacked by an animal. As the boy popped his head out of the tent that morning... He didn't see an animal. What did he see? He saw his father, who had been standing next to the tent every second of every minute the entire night. Always there. Always caring. That is our God. He hears the cries of Ishmael. You've got to believe that about God, he hears your cries. Psalm 34, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, his ears are attentive to their cries. Psalm 56 verse eight, God counts every tear that you cry. I love that, God counts every tear that you cry, he sees every tear that falls and he counts them in his bottle. God is really is the best listener. You don't just shout. You don't cry out loud because he hears even the, the silent prayers of your heart. I hope you know that when you have no words left and you just want to sob before him, he still hears that. I don't pretend to know what you're going through the hurts, the pains, the past, the present, the neglects, the abuse, the abandonment. But I do know this that God hears your cries and he cares for you deeply. Let's finish with
3: Sarah. So I find Sarah incredibly complicated in this story. Um, there are sometimes I have deep compassion for her and what she goes through, and there's other times that I think she's the absolute worst. Um, she's the victim of her um, husband's poor decisions and abuse, and yet she also causes tremendous pain to the people around her. Um, we do know a little bit more about Sarah, than we know about Hagar, Um, first it's repeatedly said that she is beautiful, stunningly beautiful, so beautiful that her husband is scared that people will kill him for her, so he lies and says, this is my sister. We also know that she is barren in a society that valued the ability of women to bear children and continue their husband's line above almost everything else. So she was unable to have children even though that was her desire and to make matters worse. Her husband has been promised to be the father of many nations. So I imagine that there was a lot of shame that grew the longer she waited for God's promises to be fulfilled. It's not surprising that she grew resentful and bitter over time. So if we turn back to 16 and now see chapter 16 and now see the same story from Sarah's perspective, we see that she begins to have this desperation and impatience for a child and she begins to seek to control and manage that situation. At this point, it has been 10 years since that promise that God made to Abram that he would be the father of a great nation. And she has not been able to fulfill that promise. So she sends a slave girl to her husband in hopes that Hagar will have a child. And in her desire to control the situation and in her inability to trust God, she seeks to take the situation into her own hands without thinking about the pain she may cause to those around her. Sarah's doubting God will do what he says he will do and that God is who he says he is. And I think this is quite a human response. When there's time in life, when there's gaps between our expectation or how we want our lives to be or what it's promised to be and what reality actually is, I think it's easy to want to step in and control and manage and fix. When we grow impatient in the waiting and feel like things are out of our hands, that's when we want to control instead of resting in God's promises and trusting his character. Can I speak a challenge for a minute? I think this is a very human response, but I also think as a woman, I see my own tendency to be like Sarah and control and manage situations when I doubt. I think it's common for women to be the ones who carry the mental load in their life, amongst their family and friends, and to be juggling all the balls of of work and life. And when things are messy or not happening in the, the way that we want or as quickly as we want, it can be really tempting to just step in and manage and fix things. But in this situation, God was asking Sarah to rest and to trust him. What God was doing by bringing the birth of Isaac was literally impossible. She's 90 when it happens. It had to happen supernaturally. Supernaturally. And yet, Sarah still felt this need to step in and control the situation. But God is a God of grace. And so despite Sarah's fixing and controlling and managing and abuse of Hagar, her story doesn't end in chapter 16. God finally does the impossible another 15 years later, and Isaac is born and God's promise is kept. After 25 years, she'd probably given up hope and felt forgotten, but God remembers his promises to Sarah. After hearing so much messiness, the good news of this story is found in Genesis 21, verse 1. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did For Sarah, what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to to Abraham in his old age at the very time that he promised. The faithfulness of God to Sarah was not determined by her faithfulness, just like the covenant of Abraham in chapter 15 was not upheld by his faithfulness. Sarah was full of doubts and did not believe that God would fulfill his promises to her. She grew resentful and at times almost cruel in her waiting. She managed, controlled, took things into her own hands. She hurt people in the pursuit of her own plans and schemes. But God kept his promise to Sarah. And not because of anything she had done, but because of who he is. God was faithful to her and he showed her grace. And those moments when I have acted like Sarah and sought to control and manage my own life, I am reminded of That God is good and He is gracious. Have a tattoo on my left wrist. It's the Hebrew word Hesed. It is not easily translated to English, um, but it's the one that it's the word that we see in the Old Testament whenever you see it's often the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's the word for steadfast love. I have it tattooed here because I forget and I need to remember. Um, It is God's covenantal love to the Israelites not bound by how faithfully they kept the covenant, but rather by his love and faithfulness that upheld the covenant. And as followers of Christ, we experience the same steadfast love in Jesus. Ephesians 3, 8, and 9 reminds us that it is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And it is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of our works. And just like Sarah, my faith is not always the strongest and doubts creep in. But it is God's gracious love that stands firm even when we can't. When I was in university, there was a, a song that was popular on Christian radio that was one of my favorites that I would listen in seasons of doubt because the, the chorus said, my faith is like shifting sand changed by every wave. So I will stand on grace. So what do we see in these chapters in Genesis? God knows the abuse of Abram. God sees the pain of Hagar. God hears the cries of Ishmael, and God keeps his promises to Sarah. In these passages, we saw four characters. Two were rich and powerful, and two were abused and rejected and abandoned. And yet God was faithful to each one of them. God worked despite Abram and Sarah. He saw their sin, and he cared about it. But he also kept his promise to them with the birth of Isaac. God pursued and provided for Hagar and Ishmael. He saw their pain and he heard their cries, and he promised them a good future with blessing. That he restores and he redeems each life in these chapters is because that is his character. He is good. He is a good God writing good stories because he is the master storyteller. And he continues to write good stories in the lives of you and me. Regardless of whether we feel like we're the ones crying out in the wilderness or the ones losing faith and full of doubt, he will do what he promised. Whether we're the ones feeling abandoned and alone and rejected or we're the ones seeking to manage and control, he will do what he promised. He continues to restore and redeem because that is who he is. Now we are about to come to a table and take communion. So after thinking through this um, sermon, I wanted to, to leave you guys with a quote as we come to that table by a woman named Rachel Held Evans that reminds us of the heart of God. This is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes, and there's always room for more.
2: It's a great verse in 2 Timothy, chapter two, verse 13. If we are faithless, he, that is God, remains faithful. Isn't that true? If we are faithless, when we stuff up, when we fail, when we sin, God is still faithful. We're going to take communion now, it's a reminder of God's faithfulness. God promised to forgive us our sins in the Lord Jesus Christ. So whatever you have done, that is a promise that you can rely on. Your sins are forgiven fully by the blood of Jesus. So if you're here tonight as a believer in Christ, can I encourage you to take the bread, it's all gluten-free, to take the juice, hold on to it as we sing our next song. We're going to eat and drink together after our next song. But it's right and proper to recognize that God is not just faithful, but we are faithless. And so we have a time of confession right now. And I would invite you to, to bow your heads and just bring before God the ways that you have been not trusting God with your whole heart. Those times that you have led on your own understanding. For the time when you've said and done things which are foolish
0: and you've hurt other people and you've heard God.